Well, some of you know, I didn't always go to work wearing a robe. I used to work at Microsoft, and when I left Microsoft a few years ago to go to seminary, it really puzzled a lot of people. They just couldn't figure this out. I mean, why would anybody leave a perfectly good job at the company that was developing the leading software in the industry to go do something so incredibly impractical as go to seminary? It just didn't make sense. Like, to this day, I still have one friend who loves to tease me, but, and he says that he's convinced that the reason I did it was so that I could wear a robe to work. <laughs> I, I kept having to answer this question over and over again. And so I came up with what I, I thought was kind of a good answer, and I told people that, well, you know, I've always been an evangelist with a product to sell. The only difference is that I've switched over to a product that will never become obsolete. <laughs> And it was sort of a good joke, but it was a joke with a little bit of a sting to it, you know? Because it's true. I think about all the products that I've worked on in different industries, and some of them became obsolete in a year, sometimes in a few months, sometimes even in a single day. The one thing every product I've ever worked on has in common is that they've all become obsolete. The last product I worked on at Microsoft was the handheld computer, the pocket-sized computer. And the only thing I have showed to show for that project is a wooden block that was carved out as a model, as a replica of the product because it never even shipped. We scrapped it before it even got to market. Sometimes we'd, we'd have a design decision in the morning and to go in a certain direction and then by the afternoon, that was obsolete because the market or the technology had changed. Now, but before I go any further, I want you to know this is not a sermon about quitting your job. <laughs> Please, don't do that. If you want to send the word to hell, world to hell in a handbasket, we could all go out and become pastors. That's not a good idea. We need, to, we need to work and serve people and put food on the table. Have a real job. <laughs> so, anytime somebody asks me about quitting and going to seminary, I tell them, don't do it unless it's absolutely the last possible thing in the world that you can do, unless God hasn't left you with any other options, because that's pretty much what he did to me. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but my point is that obsolescence is a law of nature. And obsolescence doesn't just apply to business and technology, it applies to all of nature. Everything in nature decays. Plants die, animals die, mountains erode, even the sun and the stars will eventually burn out. Scientists call this entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything winds down and the universe ends in heat death. It's the same with things we produce with our hands. They all become obsolete. And yet, we deny this reality all the time. Have you ever stopped to think about how much of our economy is driven by our desire to deny death? Look at our advertising. Isn't our advertising pretty much all based on our desire to be young forever and to feel young and to convince ourselves that we can go on and on? We all long for something that lasts. We have within us this desire to be a part of something that never ends. This desire to leave something behind that makes a mark on the world, to leave a legacy. We're driven by a desire to deny death. 
And the best-selling business book of the last decade is right in this theme. Have you read this book called Built to Last? It's a great book. It really is. It's a masterful study of what makes a great organization tick, what builds an organization that has vision, that has drive, and that leaves a legacy. And the book begins by stating the fundamental problem on the very first page. It says, all individual leaders, no matter how charismatic or visionary, die. And all visionary products and services eventually become obsolete. Death is the ultimate problem. And it drives us to create something that will outlast us. It, is, it drives us to create something built to last. Bill Hewlett, the founder of Hewlett Packard, said this about it. As I look back on my life's work, I'm probably most proud of having helped to create a company that by virtue of its values, practices, and success, has had a tremendous impact on the way companies are managed around the world. And I'm particularly proud that I'm leaving behind an ongoing organization that can live on as a role model long after I'm gone. It's a noble thought, isn't it? To leave behind a legacy that will live on. Bill Hewlett got that part right. The irony is that he'd only been dead for a few years when his company, Hewlett Packard, split apart and then merged with Compaq and began laying people off to cut costs and gain market share. But he at least got one thing right. He knew that the point wasn't in the products because they became obsolete. He knew that the point of what he was doing was in the people. Everything comes down to people. Either human beings have eternal value or nothing has eternal value. And sometimes it takes us a wake-up call to learn that lesson. My friend Dave had a call in the middle of a meeting a few years ago. He was traveling on business and he was making a sales call, a big client in a conference room. And he received a call in the middle of the meeting. It was his family calling to tell him that his brother had gone into the hospital and with an infection and that when they studied the problem, they discovered that the infection was due to a severe case of leukemia that had gone undiagnosed and that his brother might only live for 12 more hours. Dave told me that he melted to the floor and began sobbing. Then he began screaming, no, no. He had to have somebody drive him to the airport because he couldn't drive himself. He got to the hospital, met his brother there and his wife of only six months. And it was the most devastating moment of his life. His brother actually died 46 days later. And Dave spent that time at his brother's deathbed and serving his brother and his wife. And he tells me that this was the most, the deepest joy he has ever experienced in life. Because he knew that he would see his brother in heaven. Dave knew the truth. He knew that death doesn't get the last word. He knew that his brother's life had eternal value. He knew that death wasn't the end of the story. And that's the message of today's text. Listen to what Paul says. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable. Friends, 
Here is the meaning of life. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable. You see, there's only one way to live forever. And it's not by what we create with our hands. The only way to live forever is to be God's creation. That's what God created us for, to live forever. God's creation is the only creation that never becomes obsolete. People never become obsolete. That means we can even laugh in the face of death. Not because death is a laughing matter. It's not. It's because we can see through death into the bigger reality, into the eternal glory of life. And you realize that's exactly what Paul's doing here in this text? He's making a laughing stock of death. He's poking fun at it. Listen to what he says. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? He's quoting these lines right out of the Old Testament, out of Isaiah and Hosea. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled that prophecy by defeating death. And that means we get the last laugh. And I'm not talking about a laugh that ignores the pain of death. We grieve death. I'm talking about a whole different kind of laughter, not a foolish laughter. I'm talking about a deep, meaningful laughter. It's, it's the kind of laughter that it comes out of spontaneous joy, the joy of heaven. It's the kind of laughter that we feel when we're rescued from harm. It's the kind of laughter that comes in the story when the hero is rescued from destruction at the last moment in a surprising victory. And we laugh with relief. And that's why I think C.S. Lewis got it right when he said that the real mark of a Christian is mirth. Friends, we have a great example of mirth here in this congregation in our friend Gail Waltz. Because Gail has discovered the gift of laughter in the most remarkable way. Gail has discovered the gift of laughter through pain. That's right. See, Gail has a difficult nerve disease that causes her pain. And what she discovered is that when she's laughing, the pain loses its sting. And she's cultivated this gift. And I invite you to come hear Gil's testimony and to experience the gift of laughter with her right here this afternoon in the community center at 455. Details are in the bulletin. But Gil's gift of laughter is what I'm talking about. This is a type of laughter which we call mirth. The pain is real. The laughter doesn't change that, that reality. But she's able to laugh because she knows that pain isn't the end of the story. She's able to rise above the pain, to play with the pain, to transcend it because her life has a richer meaning that transcends any pain. Without that deeper meaning, sincere laughter would be impossible. That's what mirth is. It's sincere laughter. Mirth is laughter that stems from a deeper purpose. It's laughter that is rooted in the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything from death to life, from despair to joy, from emptiness to fullness, from hopelessness to meaning. And you might think that that message would direct us to focus all of our attention on heaven. But you know, here's the funny thing about Paul's text and the, and the whole Bible even, is that he doesn't really tell us anything at all about heaven. 
He doesn't have much to see about heaven at all. Instead, he calls us to pay attention, not to heaven, not to the next life, but to this life. Listen to his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, the resurrection is not a call to abandon our earthly pursuits and focus our minds so much on heaven that we become no earthly good. It's a call to excel in this life, to work in this life, precisely because of the resurrection gives meaning to this life. And that's why the resurrection is a trumpet call. The resurrection is a wake-up call. And that's why the last trumpet is not playing taps. It's playing reveille. It's a call to wake up, to be changed, to be transformed, and to live out the reality of the resurrection. To live as people who have received the gift of immortality. That changes everything. That changes our relationships. We can't get along anymore with treating people like objects. We can't get along with treating people like mere flesh and blood. We can't get along with treating people like dirt, which is the stuff of the creation. God formed us out of the dust of the earth. But that's not the whole story. We're much more than that. We get to treat people as those who will bear the eternal glory of the risen Lord. And that changes all my relationships. If I hadn't ever heard that trumpet call, I might as well treat people like objects. I might as well think of people in terms of how they meet my needs. I might as well go on judging my wife in terms of how well she pleases me. I might as well go on judging my children in terms of how obedient they are. I might as well go on judging everybody around me on the basis of whether they did what I wanted them to do or not. And I would be perfectly justified in judging that, being angry at that person in front of me at the checkout counter who always has an item that requires a price check and is holding me up. <laughs> but you see, that's not who those people are. They're not objects. They are the most important creations in the universe. They're built to last. They're creations of God, destined for eternal life with Him. And when I see them that way and treat them that way, that's called love. That's what I'm called to do. That's my work in the Lord. That's the work that has eternal value. And that's why my work in the Lord is not in vain. That's the reason my friend Dave could rejoice in serving his brother even on his deathbed. That's the reason Gail can go on laughing even in the midst of pain. And that's the reason we can all do meaningful work right now here in this life with our hands, building products, serving people, serving the world. Because as long as we recognize that the value isn't in the product, the value is in the gifts God has given me, the value is in knowing who I serve, the value is in working with people that I treat as eternal people, when I love people, then my work is not in vain. And I can work joyfully. So the message of Easter, it's a brilliant trumpet call. It's a wake-up call to new life. 
And it's calling each of us to see the eternal glory in each other. I know I need to hear that wake-up call every day. I need to be reminded that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wake-up call. And we pray that we would hear it today and every day. We pray that you would fill us with the truth of the eternal glory that you've called us to. And Father, if there are any of us here today who haven't heard your call, I pray that they would. I pray that we might even hear it right now in the words that we are about to sing. Amen.